Uh, Meredith, we've talked a lot about your background, but we'd like to focus now on the book that you're co-authored with Nadia Wheatley. What, what is the book called? It's called Radicals, Remembering the 60s. And it uh, really is that. We, we have interviewed 20 different people, ranging from Jeffrey Robertson and David Marr to you know, black activist Gary Foley and uh, actor John Derham, union official, later Minister for Transport Peter Batchelor, uh, Peter Manning, um, Margaret Reynolds, the um, Queenslander, you know, Senate, Queensland Senator and Minister for Women, uh, people who were actually radicalised in that crucial period of the late 60s, early 70s. And we also extended it out to... First of all, we thought we'd be just interested in the political radicals, and then we decided to look at people who were doing radical things in art and in drama and in music, because really the 60s was a very interesting period. One of the things we discovered that, that often our characters or interviewees had very similar backgrounds. Religion was important. The Catholic-Protestant divide was important in, the, in their early lives. They had uh, parents who were really quite conservative. Uh, the parents, there was this absolute love of, you know, the lovely Mr Menzies, who sort of, he was this giant figure over the 50s and 60s. And then you have them coming across events in their own lives which which radicalised them. Mostly it was Vietnam. For, for Jeff Robertson, it, it was actually censorship for the Aboriginal uh, people we've interviewed, like uh, Bronwyn Penrith and Gary Williams and Gary Foley. It was um, the, the fight for land rights and, well, the fight for, for, for Indigenous rights generally. Um, for, for some... Some of our interviewees, people like Joseph Osobski and uh, Margaret Reynolds, it was very much about women's rights. Uh, for um, Brian Laver, it was about... Uh, he was a Queensland student radical. It was about uh, not what he saw as tyrants telling him what to do. Um, but there were others like um, LSD Fogg, who was a... He was a light and colour and mist machine guy who was very famous in Sydney in the 60s. But his influences were all about the art scene and changing changing art and theatre. And, of course, John Derham, the actor, his, uh, his changes came about through the plays that he was uh, appearing in, like anti-Vietnam plays, like Arts Vietnam and then just anti-war plays generally, Private Jacob Jacks, Sergeant Musgrave's Dance, all those anti-war plays that were very um, popular in, in the late 60s. So everyone had a different experience, but they also had similar experiences along the way. Surely they, uh, this idea of a transformation, that could apply to any epoch in history, couldn't it? Not merely the 60s, though where because of the times, there's a transformation in people from one set of political beliefs to another? Um, not so much. You really don't have the, the 
huge change in people's political ideas that happened. People went from voting for Robert Menzies to voting for Gough Whitlam. Um, That was a huge change, and that was mainly generated by the young and the whole issue of Vietnam. See, don't forget... When young people today say to me, well, why was Vietnam so important? I say, well, it would be exactly the same today. You'd have exactly the same response if we sent young men off to another country to kill people in a war that we didn't agree with and that we drafted them for that. I mean, that has never happened since, and it won't happen again, is my view. It it really was a hugely all-consuming issue. And, and also on, on apartheid. I can't see any country sending us an all-white racially selected sporting team again. So these, these were big issues and they did change people's views about the world. In November of 1966, the federal election campaign was fought on the issue of Vietnam and conscription. And the Labor Party took a principled stand against both conscription and Australia's involvement in Vietnam. Yet Harold Holt won a landslide victory then. Why was it that by 1972, why did Whitlam get traction with the Australian people, but not Arthur Corwell? Well, it took a long time to convince Australians that the Yellow Peril wasn't going to come uh, to Australia. They, they really did believe that communism would... That, w- that we would be facing communism if uh, Vietnam wasn't fought. Uh, the, the, the expression that was used over and over again was, we've got to fight it in their backyard, or otherwise we'll have to fight it in our backyard. And people really believed that. And, yes, the Labor Party took a principal stand in 66 and 69... They almost won in 69. And really it took huge demonstrations and a huge amount of effort by a lot of people. Vietnam consumed lives. It split family. There was a huge schism in the, in the, in the community about Vietnam. That went on for four or five years before the majority of Australians decided that it was a really dreadful and awful war for us to be involved in. It was the first war that we saw on our television sets. We'd come home at night and there on our sort of boxy little television set in the corner there'd be shots of of dead Vietnamese that didn't really show a fallen Australian. But that was very confronting to Australians. And and so it, it, it did take some time for the arguments to get... For Australians... To, to, to accept that we were right. You mentioned that there was a... Ch- am I right in saying there's a chapter on Geoffrey Robinson? Yes, yes. I interviewed Jeff Robertson about, you know, what radicalised him because he came from, you know, really quite a conservative family in, um, in Epi. I knew him. Uh, we knew each other as teenagers, so I found it very easy to interview Jeff. And the, the thing that radicalised him was the censorship issue because, of course, you weren't allowed to see or hear anything <laughs> in Australia in the 1960s. He was shocked that the public school that he went to, he went to Epping Boys High, that their copy of The Tempest, which was the Shakespearean play that they were studying for their, what was then called the Leaving Certificate, 
that their copy of The Tempest was expurgated and left out all the sexual stuff, whereas the copy that the private school boys were reading on the train had all the stuff about um, Caliban and, and, and the, 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 more, the more sexual side of the whole play. And, and it, this seems to have really scarred Jeff's soul, the fact. And I think some of it was resentment that um, state schools were being treated in a way that the private schools weren't too. And he'll admit that. He'll say that, yes, that a lot of it was about resentment of the, of the private schools. But then, of course, he gets involved in other issues, you know, the anti-hanging stuff. Quite a number of our uh, respondents were very radicalised by the hanging of uh, Ronald Ryan. Uh, John Derham was actually demonstrating outside the jail in Melbourne when that happened. And Jeff also gets very involved with the early Aboriginal rights campaigns too. So he, he becomes radicalised by that experience in the late 1960s. In the last few months, he has been giving legal advice to Julian Assange over the extradition to the United States to face almost certain imprisonment over spying allegations. Now, does he talk about, you know, what led him to be that, to get to that kind of, of issue? He's very open about the fact that he felt he had to stay reasonably respectable. He said, you know, he was very in favour of me going off and getting arrested, but he felt that he had to keep his nose clean so that he could appear for us in the, in the courts and and be the respectable person who would stand up for the rights of radicals. In fact, if you look at his uh, recently uh, published memoir, it's called Rather His Own Man in court with tyrants, tarts and troublemakers. And he always talks about me as one of the troublemakers that he appeared for in court. So he, he, he saw his role in, in a radical movement as being the defender in the courts of the radicals. A number of um, radicals from the 60s, yourself included, later joined the Labor Party. Why did you do that? Well, I was living in Glebe in the middle of uh, 900 Housing Commission houses. And so, so every day I saw real poverty uh, happening. And I just took the view that, yes, you might be waiting for the revolution, but in the meantime, you really had to be fighting for better conditions, better social welfare, better wages and conditions. So, and the part, obviously the party that would um, deliver that was the Labor Party. So uh, a whole bunch of us uh, joined the Labor Party. I, I joined in 1971. And, and also we were pretty interested in the idea of um, Gough Whitlam being able to win. So there was a, a huge upsurge of interest in the Labor Party in the, in the early 1970s. Would you say that there are differences politically between the people in the book about that as a, a strategy? Oh, yes, obviously. We say we interviewed Trotskyists, anarchists, people who'd call themselves pragmatists, people like me who ended up in the Labor Party. But look, just looking down the list of the 20 people we interviewed, 
most of them are not in the Labor Party today. A couple of them ended up as, like, I've just seen, uh, interviewed with Peter Duncan, who ended up the Attorney General in South Australia, and, and who, of course, was the first person in Australia to introduce legislation to decriminalise homosexuality. So, I mean, people had lots of different interests. Less than half the people that we interviewed would have been in the Labor Party. Do you think a, an interesting aspect of people's transformation is not so much when they come from conservatism to a radical position, but when they align their radical beliefs with their own self-interest? What do you mean by that? Take an example of Brian Laver. He was uh, in the very first person in Queensland from the university to be employed by the State Secretary of the Trades and Labor Council into a research position. And he, at the time, was, you know, a well-known radical out on the streets, getting arrested. His political beliefs seemed to align with the Trades Hall uh, for that period of time. But then later, he turned to anarchism, and re particularly during the moratorium campaign, rejected the Trades and Labor Council's ways of, of organising against the war. Look, no. I, think, I think, you know, you've raised the issue which is, happens over and over again, which is, do, do you take paid positions which you think at the time might help your beliefs, or do you always stay on the outside? And you've just got to make uh, judgments about that. The women's movement have been worrying about this for a long time. Do you uh, fight from outside or do you become a femocrat? And uh, it really depends on what you do when you're, uh, you are in those positions, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I might, you might accuse me of doing the same thing by becoming a Labor Member of Parliament, but you, you just hope that what you're doing can help what you actually believe in. Well, of course, the, the Labor Party of Gough Whitlam, Whitlam is vastly different from the Labor Party of um, Albanese. It, it depends upon the time in which these things happen, doesn't it? Like, uh, of, of course it does. Of course it does. And, um, and equally, I mean, OK... In the case of Labor, he was drawn into a, a student working class nexus, you know, where there was corporation for a number of years. Sorry, but, who are you talking about? Uh, Brian Labor. He, oh, he, he, he joined with the, you know, there was a, a student worker alliance that he then... I don't think it's terribly helpful just to... I, I, I didn't write the Brian Labor chapter, so I'm not even aware of anything other than that than what's in the chapter. Well, I suppose that is is it a case that there's okay, you you can have a transformation from being conservative to being a radical. But then as the the struggle goes on and there can be in in certain circumstances a change in the political beliefs of the person in order to align those with um, their current interest. Political positions changed throughout their life, of course. I mean, I don't believe exactly the same as I did 40 years ago or 50 years ago. Of course not. But there are some core beliefs, like you take Jeremy Corbyn. He, he held core beliefs and he persisted with them for over 40 years and 
no matter what they threw at him, you know, all the accusations of him being anti-Semitic and all that, he didn't allow that to transform him. Uh, he, he didn't, you know, he, he wasn't a person who was looking out for his own self-interest because he didn't gain very much by it, did he? Well, he became leader of the Labor Party. Yeah, but he, he transitioned the Labor Party towards his, his original beliefs, didn't he? He, kept, he didn't transform himself from... You know, I think this is, a, this is a fairly tangential discussion to talking about the 1960s. But, uh, you know... We'll take uh, Bob Hawke, for I example. I admired Jeremy Corbyn, but yeah. he was, you know, he, he destroyed the Labor Party to some degree in that they now have the lowest number of seats for a very long time and, you know, we're, we're stuck with Boris Johnson. I mean, that's... If you're just looking at, you know, practical results. Anyway, if you want to talk about the 1960s, I'm very happy to.